Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm your host, Andy Mitz. Tonight we have a full slate. Uh, we're going to be recapping both the Michigan State game and the Champions Classic for the basketball team, and then we're going to be looking ahead to the Kansas State match. It's going to be an interesting match. Uh, I don't know that either team is really too confident in their in their team's ability to win this game, but we have uh, Fetch joining us to, to recap the Michigan State uh, the case. The, there, there's a podcast over on gopowercat.com. Uh, covers K-State. He's going to be kicking that back off actually pretty quickly here. So uh, it, was, it was great to kind of talk with him right before he does that and get his perspectives on how Kansas State is going to be this this week here. Uh, we actually talked a little bit about the, the Bill Snyder situation and, um, you know, they might be looking for a coach just as well. So it's been all over the, been all over the place, but we went ahead and got in and talked about it here as well. So well, let's go ahead and start with that interview with Fetch. And I'm joined again by Steve Fetch. Uh, how are you doing tonight, Fetch? Uh, good. A lot better after uh, they held on for the win on Tuesday. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So, yeah, I mean, obviously the topic of conversation is going to be the the game in the Champions Classic. Um, you know, it really was kind of the, the tale of two halves. Kansas raced out to a really, really big lead in the first half. Um, you know, and halftime, I, I remember tweeting out, I was like, hey, guys, Kansas is going to be pretty good this year. Uh, and got the usual crickets response that I was actually expecting. But, um, you know, they looked extremely dominant in that first half. Was there any particular player that really jumped out to you that was keying that, other than, I think, the obvious answer of Quentin Grimes? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I was going to say. You know, Quentin Grimes, uh, one of the question marks on this team was was outside shooting, and one of the question marks uh, in terms of Grimes' long-term prospect is whether or not he can be that kind of knockdown shooter from the outside. And, uh, 
Uh, you don't expect him to go uh, six of ten every game, obviously, but came out and and really showed that he can be that knockdown shooter. So he certainly stood out to me. Um, I think the other guy who stood out to me was uh, actually Yudo Kazubuki. Um, Dieter Klaassen was the the star of the game in terms of you know he got the the Ken Palm MVP and he certainly uh, had a, a stat stuffer of a game. But for me, Azubuki in that first half um, really showed on on both ends of the floor. He got kind of stuck off the ball a couple of times defensively, but his help defense uh, at the rim was great. Um, his one-on-one post defense was great. Nick Ward, 6'9", 245, uh, listed at 245. He's, he's probably even a little bit bigger than that and just could not move Azubuki on either end of the floor. And then Azubuki scored not just with that alley-oop dunk from Dietrich Lawson and not just with the dunk in general, but had that up and under move early in the first half. Um, later in the in the second half, he had a nice little drop step for a, a dunk and got fouled. So uh, really a, a complete game for him. Looks like he's added some stuff to his repertoire in the post and, and looks like he's going to be even better than he was last year. Yeah, I think the thing that jumped out for me for, for Azubuke was that he, he just seemed more explosive. Uh, you can definitely tell he had been hitting the, the weights. Um, you know, he looked stronger. He looked faster. Like, it was just a, a big improvement for him. And he was already going to be a guy that, you know, that was going to be big and dominant down low. Um, I was a little surprised that he only played 20 minutes. He was limited a little bit by foul trouble, but not a lot, I don't think. Um, well, I, I'm sorry. I take that back. He, he was limited towards the end of the second half by foul trouble. He picked up his third, I believe, with like 13 minutes left in the game, if I remember correctly, and then sat on the bench for a good six or seven minutes. Um which I thought was a little strange. You know, we've got the depth this year that you can let a guy like that go ahead and play um, and maximize his minutes that way instead of trying to save him for the end. But, uh, you know, it looks like Yudoka Azubuke is just going to be that guy that comes in, only probably plays about 20 to 25 minutes in a game, but completely changes the whole complexity of the of the court when he's on the on the court. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that we can really expect him to get more than about 25 minutes a game this year, just because of the style that he plays. He tends to pick up fouls a little bit more often than, than some other post players, but he is such a dominant force that when he's on the floor, you really have to account for him or he's going to, he's, he's going to embarrass you. Yeah, definitely. And and I think it's like you said, I think this year it's, it's more of an issue of, um, his ability to to stay on the floor with foul trouble. And I think this year you're going to see him be a little bit more active in terms of challenging shots and stuff. Last year there was definitely more of a need to keep him on the floor just because the, the depth was not there, whereas this year, right. obviously with Dieter Klaassen, you saw David McCormick get some playing time, Mitch Lightfoot get some playing time, and then who knows what's going to happen with Silvio DeSosa. So plenty more depth, uh, plenty more opportunities for Azubuki to, to get some block shots to just in general wreak havoc on the defensive end a little bit more than he did last year. And I don't, you know, last year I think there was an issue with him maybe being out of shape a little bit at times, but this year um, I I don't think that that's been the case thus far. You saw in that uh, play early in the game when he, when he did block the shot on the health defense and and I obviously don't have it in front of me right now, so I can't remember the time or, or who took the shot, but then he raced down, got an offensive rebound off a miss, uh, by Dieter Klaassen and, and tipped it out to Quentin Grimes for an open three. So certainly not a, an in-shape issue. I think it's more, like you said, going to be a, a foul trouble issue, if anything, keeping him off the floor. Yeah, and this year, I mean, it's it, it was a little bit surprising that they went ahead and kept him off the floor for as long as they did with the fouls because 
you know, they've already, they've already shown that he can definitely, um, you know, I'm sorry, the, the, we have the guys, we could go back with a small ball lineup with, with Dietrich at the five. Um, we did it a few times in this game. Um, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not like we don't have that ability and, and self has done it enough in the last two years that he's definitely comfortable turning it over to that type of game. Um, I just, you know, we, we had a lot of discussions about this last year where, you know, with how important it was for Azubuke to be on the floor, that when you kept him out of the game for so long, you minimize the potential for him to, you know, be in the game and actually, and actually make those plays. This year, I think that could potentially be even more important. Like, I, I know you don't want to be without a particular player with five minutes left in the game, if you can all at, at all help it, but, you know, he has when he's on the floor, they are dominant enough that they can build big leads. They can put them push themselves to a point where they can you know weather a few minutes without him out there at the end of the game. Um, especially since you get those late game situations when someone's trying to come back. You know his his free throw shooting still isn't really improved. Not I mean I, I don't know that I expected it to be that much improved this year, but you're going to get to the end of the game. There's probably going to be situations where you have to pull him off the floor anyway because you don't want him shooting free throws, and so. If you maximize his minutes earlier in the game, if he does foul out with four minutes left in the game, well, you're probably going to end up sitting him for half of that anyway while they're trying to make Mount a furious comeback and trying to make him shoot free throws. So um, I, I do wonder about how that how that's going to work and, and if Bill Self is going to, to kind of maximize his time there with Doak. But um, we've talked about it multiple times. I, I, I just don't think that Bill Self is actually going to decide that that's how, how, how he wants to manage the team, though. But okay, so let's jump over to the guy that was, I guess, expected to be the main guy um, in this game, Dedrick Lawson. He had a decent stat line, but, you know, did, did you get the same feeling throughout the game that Dedrick just didn't really seem to, to have it for that particular game? At well, least I think, early? yeah, I think maybe a shot selection was not great. I noticed in the first half, Kansas would go multiple possessions without getting him a touch in an area where he could go score and then he would respond by just jacking up along two as soon as he got the ball um, or kind of an erratic drive to the basket. And some of that is Kansas needing to learn that he's probably got to be the man on the team and, and you got to get him a touch in a good spot to score maybe every other possession or, or once every three possessions or so. Um, but part part of it is I think that like I've mentioned a couple of times, you just kind of gotta just kind of gotta live with it. And the rest of the stuff that he does, uh, you know, fourteen rebounds, six assists, two blocks, two steals, all of that stuff, uh, I think is kind of the the price that you have to pay, uh, or the the mid range jumpers are kind of the price you have to pay to get that other stuff, and you kind of just gotta grin and bear it and go along with it. And I think that some of it too is maybe Bill Self's. Uh, gonna have to you know figure out the best way to use them or, or is kind of figuring out the best way to use them you saw later in the game he had a couple of possessions I don't think they were back to back but they're relatively close within each other where he basically had the ball at the top of the key and, and isolated on his man and first possession he was able to get by him and, and dish it out to Quentin Grimes for an open three and then second possession he was able to take it all the way to the basket for an easy layup so you're probably going to see some more of that. You're probably going to see some more post touches for him. You're probably going to see some more, even him running the pick and roll like you saw with Azubuki early in the game. So um, I think that maybe his stat line actually is a little bit 
um, unflat, whatever the opposite of flattering is, where he uh, played better than the numbers maybe suggested. And I think that the the sky's the limit for him and, and the sky's the limit for Kansas so long as they feature him enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed there, there seemed to be a few times where it was a little bit of miscommunication on offense and he ended up getting the ball further out than you want him taking a shot with not much time left on the shot clock. And so he ended up having to kind of score or I'm sorry, kind of attempt something and force it up there. Uh, I noticed that on at least three or four different possessions. I mean, he he shot five of 18 total from the floor. Uh, including 0 of 2 from three-point. You know, you typically probably don't want him shooting a lot of three-point shots. Um, you know, so I, I don't I don't know that I'm necessarily... But, I mean, I, I'm not too concerned with that overall shooting percentage just because it did seem like they weren't really in sync for a decent portion of that game. Um, you know, still trying to kind of feel each other out with how many different pieces they have. It's not surprising that they're going to have a lot of lineup combinations that aren't necessarily natural for them, and they have to figure out how they're going to how they're going to handle it. You know, and playing a quality opponent like Michigan State in the first game, it's not really surprising that they had a few problems. But overall, like the overall impression I got from the team, especially in that first half, was just kind of like, you know, we we almost didn't know that they were like 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 they seemed ready to play. There was a lot of times they were really lackadaisical. The defense uh, was having all kinds of problems. I, I forget who it was that tweeted out. I believe it was you on the Rock Chalk Talk account that had said, you know, this is like a this is a bad mixtape of all of Bill Self's defensive pet peeves, and yet they're winning by 16. Um, that may not have been you, but I, I saw it in a, in a few different places. I think, I think it was Jesse Newell. Um, oh, you, but, you know what? But you're I think right. It was. Yeah, it was. And, and, then, and then you responded to it, which which was the first time that I saw it. But, I mean, yeah, they, they were having so many problems. They were doing all the things that normally Bill Self would just, you know, be stomping up and down the sidelines and be yelling at people. Um, you know, you, they probably wouldn't be able to actually show him talking because he would be cursing them out so much on, on television, but they were up by 16. So it's like, you know, that's plenty of stuff to talk about later in the film room, but you can't really be too upset when they're up by that much. And that I, I think makes this team scary. The fact that they, they obviously didn't play their, their a game against Michigan state. And yet they were up by 17 at one point in the second half. And then it looked like they, you know, just kind of went into play at safe mode and allowed Michigan state to kind of chip away at the lead. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, um, obviously they took their foot off the gas big time in the second half and, and not to suggest that Michigan State is a, a bad team by any means, but I definitely think that, um, any lapses for KU, uh, last, or on Tuesday night, excuse me, were more so due to their effort uh, or lack thereof and, and just kind of thinking, okay, we got this game in the bag type stuff more than anything related to how well Michigan State played. Certainly there were some issues uh, on Kansas' end. You mentioned Jesse's tweets about the defensive lapses. Uh, a lot of bad stuff in transition. Uh, I wasn't able to find how many um, points in transition they gave up, but way too many. Uh, too many lapses off the ball with pick-and-roll coverage and with coverage off inbounds passes they got taken advantage of more than you're used to seeing a, a Bill Self team get taken advantage of in terms of um, dead ball situations. And you put all that together and, and they still would have uh, done a really good job um, holding uh, Michigan State to under a point per possession if Michigan State would have shot really anything other than 50% from three. So definitely, I think, a, a really good um, 
a really good effort on the defensive end, despite some of those lapses, uh, and a really good effort on the offensive end as well. I think you'd like to see them take a few more threes, and you know they only shot 46% from two, which is not great, but um, despite the fact that, like you said, they didn't play their best, um, definitely good enough to where they were able to win comfortably against the top 10 team, so nothing to sneeze at there for sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and everyone's going to point to the five-point margin and the fact that they were only up by three with a little bit of time left and say, oh, well, Michigan State really came back and made that a lot closer. But you really you really could tell that they just kind of got into that. I mean, they they could have put their foot on their throat and really salted the game away, and they just essentially stopped playing very hard at the end. Not Again, not to say that Michigan State isn't, you know, is a bad enough opponent that they could have not taken the game seriously, but – it's, you know, once you kind of turn the switch off, it's kind of hard to flip it back on. And I think that's more of what happened as opposed to, um, you know, Kansas actually, you know, starting to play really bad and Michigan State really asserting their will. Kansas just turned it off and wasn't able to get it turned back on at the end to keep it yeah. from getting as close as it was. And I think that that's one thing where they're they're starting multiple freshmen and, and a transfer. And that's going to be something that they're going to learn, hopefully. Uh, throughout the course of the year and, and get better at. And, and I think that if this game were played in January and they were up by um, 14 at halftime, that they would probably end up winning by 10 points rather than five. So I would look right. for them to improve that as the year goes along. Yeah, the other thing too, this early in the season, you know, when you have that much talent along the entire lineup, you can almost get to a point where everyone's like, oh, well, that guy's going to get it turned on to, you know, to stop this. I don't necessarily need to get all the way back up. Um, and if everybody assumes that, well, then nobody does. And and so you you end up with the kind of result that we had. I also think, you know, everyone's talking about how, how impressive the Duke game was and how well that they played. You know, they were sitting there watching this game and they saw Michigan State come back on Kansas and despite how you know huge of a lead they got they realized you know Kentucky is just as talented or even more talented than Michigan State if Michigan State was able to do that you know we've got to make sure that we keep our foot on the gas so um that and you have very youthful freshmen who are you know very you know top of the top of the recruiting class and everything like that you know it, it seemed like Duke was definitely more motivated to make sure that they didn't take their foot off the gas um, but both both of those teams had really, really impressive outings, both Duke and, and Kansas. So that leads me to my next question. There's a lot of people talking, and and honestly, I, I could, might be able to be persuaded to this as well, but that how Duke should jump up to the top of the polls. I know it doesn't really matter too much this early, um, but what are your thoughts on that? Was was Duke that much more dominant that they you know clearly should take over the top spot in the polls? I gotta be honest with you, I haven't looked at a, a poll in like five years, so I, I really don't follow it or I'm, I'm probably not the person to ask. Um, I will say they definitely looked, uh, really good, although I think some of it was due to maybe Kentucky not being as good as people thought, um, or not as good as probably, um, not fair, but they just don't quite have the athletes, uh, that they're used to having. Um, and so Duke was able to really take advantage of that just by playing, uh, pace and space and, and getting one-on-one matchups and, and going. And they're going to be able to do that a lot, obviously, whether they can do that against the other, you know, a Kansas or a Gonzaga or even like a, a Tennessee, which has some pretty good athletes and teams like that. 
kind of remains to be seen. Um, but certainly, I think Kansas and, and Duke are, are the best two teams. Obviously, Duke had a more impressive win. Uh, they scored like one point, almost a point and a half per possession, which is pretty insane. Um, which the fact that they allowed over a point per possession, despite Kentucky being terrible from three, probably, um, you know, it matters going forward, but probably doesn't matter when you consider it in the context of this win. So, yeah, they were they were certainly impressive. Um, if you want to rank them one, that's fine. If you want to rank Kansas one, that's fine. I, I definitely think that those two teams, as of right now, are, are head and shoulders above everyone else. But we'll see what happens uh, in March. Yeah, the, the other thing that was noted quite a bit is that while Kentucky has a bunch of talented players as well, they don't really have a true point guard on their roster. Uh, they've got a, a, a lot of guys that could play the point if they needed to, but they don't have a guy who is a clear-cut point guard that can take control of that offense. And so when you have such a talented team like Duke coming at you that hard, it's hard to, to settle everyone down and have someone actually take control of the lineup and, and get everything right. And I, I, I fully expect that Calipari is going to get that figured out. They're going to find somebody that can actually handle those point guard duties and, you know, if Kentucky plays Duke again later in the year um, in the in the tournament, we're not going to see a game any at all like this one that we just had. Yeah, def- definitely. I, Cal Parry is definitely, I think, in a – it's pretty rare where uh, his teams don't figure something out really by March. I mean, last year's team even ended up winning the SEC tournament even though they, they weren't very good and – um, can't remember if it was what three years ago when they lost to Indiana in the second round. That team, I guess, didn't quite figure it out. But it, it seems like it's happening more lately. But I think that that's just more perception uh, based off of you know he doesn't have the the 2012 team or the 2015 team. These right. teams are maybe a little bit more uh, normal in terms of their talent distribution than than those teams were. So uh, definitely expect them to be. Uh, maybe not a well, you know, definitely a championship contender. Maybe not a championship favorite, but definitely a team where you're you're not going to be surprised to see them playing into the second weekend. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'm not expecting Kentucky to kind of fall off a cliff at all here. Um, they definitely still have a ton of talent. They had the number two recruiting class, so it's not like they don't have a lot of young talent. Um, really, what's going to determine their season is how well they can f- get a point guard to emerge for them. Um, I, I think they have plenty of time to, you know, to, to get it figured out at this point. So I'm not, you know, I fully expect them, yeah, to make the second weekend and all of that. Um, you know, looking at Ken Palm though, and I realize it's based off of just one game, but as impressive as that Duke victory was, they're they are still ranked number two behind Kansas in the in the Ken Palm rankings. Um, Kansas's adjusted efficiency margin is actually a full point higher than Duke, so. Um, you know, that, that kind of tells you something as impressive as that offensive output was their defense wasn't, wasn't really as impressive, um, as, as the defense that that Kansas put together. And I mean, they're still both top, top five. Um, so Kansas has the number two offense and the number three defense and Duke has the number one offense and the number five defense. So both are still obviously very, very talented teams. Um, and interesting, actually the only other team that has, both offense and defense in the top 10 would be North Carolina who has five and six. And obviously they played a Wofford team that, um, you know, that, that was their revenge game from last year. You would kind of expect them to play pretty well. Um, obviously you'd take opponent strength into account when you do these ad- adjustments for the offensive and, and the defensive efficiency. But, um, you know, it's not really a surprise that, that North Carolina looked good too. So 
Kansas Duke, and then you you might be able to throw North Carolina in there as as the 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 three teams that seem to have performed the best overall so far in this early season. But yeah, and, the, and there's obviously a lot of I think he keeps his preseason rankings in there as part of the waiting into the rankings until right. like I think it's like late January, so it, it's going to be a while before we know you know a hundred percent based on this season where everyone's at, but. You don't expect Duke to, to turn it over. I think they turned it over like four times. You don't expect that to happen with a bunch of freshmen. And you don't expect uh, them to, like I said, allow teams with good shooters to basically miss a ton. Well, not a ton of open threes, but but some open threes and stuff like that. So it, things get all kind of uh, jumbled up when you only watch one game and, and base everything oh, right. uh, off one game. But certainly they, they definitely look really good and, and have a ton of talent and they're definitely going to be fun to watch this year for sure. Most definitely. All right. So, um, any other players you wanted to highlight or anything else you want to highlight from, from our game? Yeah, I think, um, I want to give Devin Dotson a a quick shout out here. Um, obviously I was a little skeptical about his defense, uh, coming into, uh, the season and certainly he was helped by the fact that Cassius Winston is not a very good athlete, but, uh, he was dogged defensively against him. Um, did a, a really, really good job on that end of the floor, on the ball, off the ball. He, he's still obviously getting lost and stuff like that, but that's probably more freshman mistake stuff than anything that can't be fixed. Um, and then offensively, you know, decision making not a hundred percent there yet. He had four turnovers and uh, a couple of them were were pretty bad ones. There was a an alley oop that he threw about thirty five feet over. I think it was Dietrich Lawson's head, and then uh, the couple that he had in in transition where he probably should have either pulled it out or or uh, scored, um, but just kind of got a little bit too sped up. So once he stops getting a little bit too sped up, and once he's able to make decisions uh, kind of at that uh, game speed that you need to be making them at. Uh, in big time college basketball, I think he's going to be a, a really, really good player and probably better than I thought he was going to be coming into the year. Yeah, definitely. I was surprised to see one him him get the start. I thought that Charlie Moore would get it early, and the fact that he had so many more minutes. He had 33 minutes to Charlie Moore's 11 minutes. So, um, you know, they didn't really play them together very often, and Dotson got the lion's share of the point guard duties, and he was extremely efficient. I thought. Uh, for the most part, when he actually had the ball. So um, I yeah. was pleasantly surprised. I don't think there's really a question anymore about who, who the point guard for this team could be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Charlie Moore had some foul trouble issues, so we'll see what happens when that doesn't happen and, and see what the minute distribution is and, and stuff like that because obviously Charlie Moore is a, a really good passer and, and really explosive player as well. Maybe did he, doesn't have. Did the, he just get some some quick fouls early, or? Yeah, he came in, and I, I don't have it uh, in front of me, but I think he committed two, uh, bang bang, and then uh, picked up another one, kind of, somewhat, quickly as well. And so he had, I think he had three in the first half, or, or maybe his third one was pretty quickly into the second half, and just wasn't able to get into the flow of the game um, as much. So Okay, I was going to say, I hadn't really noticed like when his actually came, but I, I saw that he had three fouls, and so did Dotson. Um, so they must have come pretty quick for that to really be an issue for him. Um, yeah, there were, like I said, yeah, his first two were, were back-to-back, and that's going to be interesting to see what happens 
uh, if Bill Self is maybe a little bit more eager to pull guys with uh, two fouls in the first half because he does have that depth off the bench, or if he goes the other way and says, well, I can just ride him out because if they if they do foul out, then we can put someone else in. So that will be something uh, interesting to track over the course of the year. Yeah, and okay, I'm, I'm actually looking at the play-by-play right now. He had a foul at 13.07 in the first half and then another one at 12.04 in the first half. So he had two like back to back right before the, the under 12 timeout. Um, and then I'm trying to see if I can see the next time he actually did something. So it looks like he sat out for most of the rest of the first half at that point, which you can do, you know, when you've got Devin Dotson playing pretty well and you've got that kind of depth. Uh, it looks like Charlie Moore fi- finally gets back in at about the eight, the eight minute mark. Um, let me see. I'm trying to find out where he got his, his third foul. Looks like, yeah, it looks like it was early in the second half. Um, just KJ Lawson. There's <laughs> a lot of fouls here to go through. Uh, Kansas, Kansas had a lot of fouls in this game. It seemed like, if if I remember correct, I looked up and at one point they had had seven fouls called on them before Michigan State got the first one called on them, which I I found a little strange. I, I didn't think that you know it, it didn't seem like they were pressing a lot more. Um, I think that that's a, just a, um, a byproduct of some of the new emphasis that they have on certain plays and I guess deciding to, to go ahead and call them really quickly as soon as I can. So, um, any, any thoughts on that? I mean, are you worried about whatever emphasis they have this, this no. year? Or? No, I think that they're going to, uh, I think that that just, just like we see every year by the time Marshall's around, they're going to relax that and everything. So. Do you, I am not. What's that? Do you happen to know what the supposed emphasis is this year? Because they kept saying, like every every time a foul got called, they kept saying, "Oh, well, that's an emphasis for the for the refs this year." Um, no, I I, I don't. <laughs> um, I have no idea to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I, just, I, I, just I learned my lesson uh, stopping paying attention to that too, because that's one thing that always goes away in March anyway. So I just don't even really worry about it. Yeah, it was weird. Oh, and actually, Charlie Moore's final. Uh, final foul came at the 539 mark of the second half. So it's not like he was in foul trouble the entire game. He just wasn't playing well enough, I think, to actually get on the floor. So so we'll see how that works. Um, yeah, so, but in terms of the, the emphasis, it just seemed like every every time they called a foul on KU, it sounded like uh, Vital, you know, had a, oh, well the, well, the refs are really focusing on that this year. Like I heard that at least five or six times in the first half, and I, I didn't really understand what it was that they were supposedly focusing on. But uh, all right, so um, I know I, I know that we're just about out of time. So moving forward, next week on Monday, uh, Kansas plays uh, Vermont, the Vermont Catamounts, and then on Friday they play, they play Louisiana. So two two quick home games. I believe that they're both actually part of the NIT preseason tournament. They're, they're those, those home matchups, uh, for the four schools that actually go to the tournament itself. Um, wait a minute. I'm sorry. The preseason, the preseason NIT one is not, is not what I was thinking of. Um, this is, this is where, you know, they have the, the neutral side game against Marquette coming up. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. The, yeah. That's the, the yeah, that's the preseason. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I'm sorry. You're right. Wow, I'm I'm uh, confusing myself. It, it doesn't show up on Ken Palm, so for a second I thought that right. was the one neutral site game. Um, so yeah, that's where they play Marquette, and then they'll play the winner of Kentucky and Lou- uh, I'm sorry, uh, Tennessee and Louisville. Um, most likely Tennessee, 
but yeah, so, so these are the two home matchups that they get as kind of the lead up to that, where they can get more people involved or more schools involved in this NIT preseason tip off without actually having to host, you know, eight, eight schools there. So um, I'm expecting these to be decent games. It's not like, you know, these are going to be horrible teams for the rest of the year. These are probably going to be, you know, decent teams in some of the lower conferences. And so it won't really harm KU's strength of schedule, but there's no real expectation that Kansas is going to have any trouble with any of these games. Right. Yeah. I think uh, Vermont is the pretty heavy favorite in the America East, despite uh, UMBC, the the darlings of the world being in that league, you know, Vermont won it uh, the regular season last year. And, and I think they're pretty hefty favorites to do so again, although they are replacing three starters off last year's team. So just like Kansas has to, to blend in some new blood, they do as well. And, and certainly not with the, the type of talented newcomers that Kansas has. So um, probably a, a good time to play them where, you know, they might beat them by a little bit more than um, the, the end of year ratings would suggest uh, that they should. And then Louisiana in the Sun Belt. One of the you know top two or three uh, teams in the Sun Belt certainly, uh, right with uh, Georgia State. Um, they uh, were you know pretty good last year. Um, lost in the first round of the NIT. They also lose uh, three starters off last year's team. So kind of the same type of thing as Vermont, where they're uh, going to be blending in some new guys with maybe not as much talent as Kansas has, but. Certainly going to be um, two wins that I think are going to help out uh, KU strength schedule. Obviously, it's it's not based on the RPI like it was last year, but those wins over uh, teams like Vermont and, and Louisiana who go on to win their conference are are still a big um, you know chip in their favor when it comes down to to fighting for a number one seed. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean just to kind of talk about the strength of those conferences, Vermont is the only team that's actually expected to have a positive adjusted efficiency margin this year. They're the only team ranked inside the Ken Palm top 200. Um, They're, they're projected to go 12 and four in the conference by Ken Palm. And uh, the next, the next closest is Stony Brook, Hartford and UMBC are all projected to go nine and seven. So they, they are expected to kind of run away with that conference. Um, And then in terms of, Louisiana, they're they're projected to go twelve and six. Georgia State's projected to go thirteen and five. They're both hovering right around the hundred mark in Ken Palm. So, uh, yeah, two of the those those two teams are again expected to be at the top of their conferences. The conferences aren't you know expected to be super good this year. They're probably middle of the pack um, or maybe top of that bottom tier. So, but again, that, those are the kind of games you get in the non-conference. You know, this this time of year. So it's not. It's not like uh, we're not seeing this from the other top 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 contenders. So it'll, it'll be a good opportunity for them to kind of showcase what they can do, get a few tune-up games, and then we can enjoy a really really good event over the Thanksgiving break, um, you know, in that preseason NIT tournament. So, all right, any other final thoughts before we get out here for the night? Uh, no, I, th- I think we nailed it. All right, do you have a uh, a random sports minute for the day? Oh boy. Uh, wow. Springing it on me here. Um, let's see. Well, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to, to KU football again. I think it's going to be KU football until we actually hire a coach. Yeah, probably. Um, I, uh, I don't know, you know, any kind of timetable. I don't know, I guess when that'll happen. Um, all these reports coming out that, uh, Jeff Long has met with Les Miles. Uh, certainly I think, um, like we've talked about, he's not going to get the recruits at Kansas that he did at LSU certainly. So, 
we'll see what happens there. But I do think that um, he's probably going to get maybe some better recruits than, than people are expecting. I mean, I think a lot of people do want to come play for a coach more so than uh, caring about the school as much. So I do think that that's going to help a little bit. And, and if he is the guy, you know, I guess the, the realistic scenario is, you know, maybe he wins six, seven games um, once he gets things rolling and, and uh, builds up the roster for a few years. And then when he retires for good, it's, you know, a much better and, and much more attractive job for someone. But uh, like I tweeted today, I think they need to make Jeff Munkin uh, say no, because I just think with the type of players they have on the roster right now uh, and his ability to turn uh, obviously lightly recruited guys at Army into a team that can go to overtime with Oklahoma, I think that that's maybe a little bit something that's uh, too good to, to pass up. Yeah, I think Jeff Munkin is a guy you need to make him say no. I also think a guy like Seth Luttrell, you probably want to make him say no too. I still maintain, from everything that I've been hearing, that Les Miles, while there is definitely interest from Les Miles, like actual interest, not just the I need to make it look like I'm looking for a job so I can keep getting paid by LSU interest, um, you know, Kansas seems to be almost holding him as kind of the backup plan. Um, where they have, still have other guys that they want to talk to first, and there's definitely some long-term candidates that would make more sense, um, just in terms of a, like a stability and Jeff Long wanting to build the type of program that he wants. Where if you can get those guys and get them to start building, you have to think that they, you know, it might take a little bit longer to get back to national relevancy, um, but it's going to build a better foundation for the program moving forward. So. Um, you have a guy in there that understands football and how to build a program well enough that we're going to get the patience that we need. And he's going to be able to sell that, I think, to the fan base a little bit better than Shane Zinger did. Um, but, you know, Les Miles is a, is a nice guy to kind of have in your back pocket as a, if we can't get any of the guys that we really want, then let's go make a big splash with him. You know, we, we at least know he's not going to make the situation worse. He's going to be a much better big name hire than a Charlie Weiss was. Um but I, I still don't think that that's who they want to go after first. So um, I actually have a random sports minute of my own. Um, I, I wasn't sure if you were going to come prepared or not. So the the KU women's soccer team is actually getting ready to start. Um, we are recording this on Thursday night. So on Friday, they are hosting St. Louis in the first round of the NCAA uh, soccer tournament. If they win that game, they will go on to go play North Carolina, just like they did two years ago when they hosted Missouri to open up the tournament. And then they went to North Carolina and fell to nothing to them there. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of getting a little bit of deja vu hosting another um, right. regional school. I, I do think that this KU soccer team is probably going to win that game. They played really well in the big 12. They stumbled a little bit in the middle of the conference season. Um, you know, but they have Grace Hagan. Um, they have uh, Katie McClure. They have a lot of really good players there. You know, I, I did that interview with Josh Klingel, who actually calls the game for them on ESPN Plus, um, and they have a really, really good team this year. Uh, they just there's just a lot of really good teams in the Big 12. They actually finished sixth in the Big 12 uh, in terms of their seed for the Big 12 tournament. Fell to Texas in the quarterfinals of the Big 12 tournament, which which is actually the first round, but um, on on penalty kicks. So you know it was a very very competitive match, um, and I expect them to. To beat St. Louis, I expect them to go on to North Carolina. They have a shot at getting an upset, but North Carolina is one of the top seeds. Um, so I imagine that their their run, unfortunately, is probably going to stop a little earlier than we would all like to see. But uh, it's definitely going to be fun rooting for them. 
we're going to try to see what kind of coverage we can have of the team over on Rock Chalk Talk. Uh, I might I might do the whole uh, Twitter recap again if I can actually find time to swing it. So, uh, but we definitely want to make sure you guys, you know, if if you are in the area and have the opportunity, um, get out there to go ahead and support the team and watch, you know, what should be their last their last victory for this team out there at Rock Chalk Park this year. All right, Fetch, any other final thoughts before we get out here for the night? Uh, nope, I think we're good. Sounds good. Well, thanks again for joining me, and we will uh, catch you the next time we actually have a game to recap. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. All right, thanks. All right, and that does it for the Champions Classic portion of the podcast. Let's get right on over to the interview with uh, Grant Tommy. And I'm joined now by Grant Tommy. Uh, he uh, is the the host over at the the Imadio podcast. Uh, sounds like you guys have been on a little bit of a break, but you're you're thinking about firing it back up sometime soon. Is that right, Grant? Yeah, it'll be uh, kind of close out football season this year. It's kind of what I did last year, and after I shut my own website down, it just uh, I found a landing spot over at GoParacat.com, and it's been a nice little relationship. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, you know, regardless of the fact that you. Uh, that you talk about and root for the enemy for us Jayhawks. Uh, it, it's always good to have as many voices out there as possible to have some good quality sports coverage. So, all right. So obviously we're here to talk about the Kansas versus Kansas state football game that's happening um, this weekend coming up the sunflower showdown. Um, it's I think a, maybe a little bit surprising going into the beginning of the year, but this essentially is the game for the last place in the big 12 conference. Um, Whoever loses game is going to finish 10th in the standings, most likely, um, after you take into account any kind of tiebreakers that there might be. So, um, first of all, what are your thoughts going into this game? Were, were you expecting Kansas State to have these kind of problems this year? No, not at all. I had, I had done one other uh, preview podcast for a West Virginia blog, and I basically laid out that, you know, Bill Snyder's only had less than six wins, I think, three, three times. To, no, that's not right. Uh, five times in his whole, like, 27. So it's really hard to envision a, a floor lower than six. And so I was willing to just say, I mean, even if bad injuries and everything happens, it's really hard to see less than six wins. Now, that being said, obviously the uh, the trajectory does not look like it will be a six-win season this year. I was not expecting that. I actually do have a Vegas ticket as well for the over on six-and-a-half wins that I should be burning right now. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's been a little bit of a disappointing season for a lot of different teams in the Big 12 this year. Um, obviously, TCU, who lost to Kansas a couple weeks ago, is having a bad year. And uh, Kansas State wasn't playing as well. And I, I know that there was a lot of people that had optimism for Kansas this year as well, um, especially after they won those two games against Central Michigan and Rutgers. But um, then things kind of got back to what the normal expectations were for the year for, for a lot of these teams. But, um, you know, I guess – Really, the the main topic, at least nationally, uh, that, that I've heard related to Kansas State is that it sounds like whether he wants it to be or not, this might be the last year that Bill Snyder is the head coach over at Kansas State. Have you have you heard anything on that? Do you have any thoughts about one whether whether he is going to either step down or be forced out, or and then if if he should at this point as well? I think the way you stated it is about as best as it can be stated at the moment in the fact that. It, whether he wants it or not, it the right it looks like writing on the wall is starting to show up. And you know, I 
it's it's a really tough relationship, but um, it's one that I could probably spend the next 20 minutes talking about, but I'll I'll try not to. But uh, yeah, this is as close as it's ever felt to be the end of his career again, um, as ever. And I think what's it's been punctuated by just a lot of uncharacteristic things, even for himself. All the things he preaches, all of the the 16 goals for success, a bunch of just character things. He's even of himself stepped outside of, of some of those character traits, and it's just a bit odd for all of us to watch. And, and I think that's, to me, maybe more importantly, I, when you have as much cachet as Bill's built up over the years, I think you can overlook one one bad season. But the way I also relate it to is like, and I'll try not to get too far off the deep end here. Um, the analogy of like like my financial plans, I can budget well in the like the week to week, and I think I've got a pretty good trajectory for a retirement portfolio. But what I struggle with is like the five year plan. I think that's kind of what Bill is like. He can focus really well day to day. He's got extreme focus. He doesn't really have to worry about the long term plan because he's kind of just going to do whatever. But I'm like, what's the five year plan like? Even if he stayed after this year and somehow to correct everything next year, like still, what's the end goal? Like, what what else can he accomplish? And that's that. I think between the character traits that he's just not living by, and kind of the like, what's then what the then what statement? That to me is what I think is is kind of pointing towards this might be it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I've heard a lot of chatter. Um, just in terms of, and, and I've noticed this my, my, myself in the last few weeks, when things have gone wrong, what typically happens in the Bill Snyder tenure is he talks about how, you know, maybe how the, how the coaching staff might have failed that particular player. Or he talks about, you know, how it was a team effort. He doesn't call out individual players um, typically. And he's done that now a couple times in the last three weeks or so, like specifically called out an individual player and basically run the bus over them. Um, definitely uncharacteristic for him. There's been a lot of talk, you know, I think his, his five-year plan for a while now has kind of been turn the reins over to my son so he can run the program. Um, and now that they're having issues with the, the, the coaching schemes aren't working and it seems like they're starting to lose the locker room, you know, he's not talking so much about what his son is doing on the staff anymore because that wouldn't necessarily look very good um, with the way that things are turning out. So it definitely seems like there's a lot um, a lot that's different. Like it, it, it almost seems like the wheels are just completely falling off of the program right now. And they're going to have to do something drastic, whether, whether they can get Bill Snyder to sign off on it or not, they're going to have to make some sort of change sooner rather than later. I think the question then becomes, you know, what's the right timing for that? How do they handle that? And how do they save face for as many people as possible in that process? So, um, do you, do you have any thoughts in terms of the, the, the transition, like when you'd like to see it happen, who do you think would be, a good a good person to kind of step in is is there somebody on staff that could take it over and be successful or are they going to have to go outside of the staff um or you know even outside of necessarily the the bill snyder coaching tree well especially given the way the season's going i don't think anybody has the appetite for staying within the current staff in in too drastic of a scenario i mean i think there's some some assistants you'd like to see maybe retain their jobs if the next person comes in and um and, you know, does their interviews and feels like they're a good fit for them. I think everybody is really pointing towards about two or three different directions, and I'll I'll get to that in a second. But 
um, much like you said, I, the timing of it, I mean, for me, so if the last game of the year was a home game, that's how Bill Snyder did it the last go-around, was the Tuesday press conference before the last game of the season. This year we close out at Iowa State. I would think, you know, and in the modern college football landscape, really, you, if you haven't made up the decision before two the last two regular season games, you're kind of going to be behind. And so I applaud KU for doing what they did three games out um, because I really – they were, you know, by and large, I think they were the first uh, Division I program to do that this year to start the carousel going. The the timing of the KU move, honestly, they should have fired him before the season even started. They should have fired him again at the bye week. They should have fired him (laughs) a lot of of times previously. So, you know, all all, all those over at KU are like, finally (laughs) – to be honest, he, he probably should have been fired last year. Um, but that yeah. wouldn't have worked with with Shane Zinger still being there. So, but I well, mean, yeah, the, yeah, and, that, and the chancellor change and all that fun right, stuff. Right, exactly, like, and and that's really what it was. The 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 chancellor change um, set the wheels in motion there for Shane Zinger to get his extension and kind of do what he wanted to do. Um, and so the the new chancellor didn't want to get rid of him too quickly. And so then when they finally got rid of the AD then it was too quick before the beginning of the season to really get rid of the the head coach. So it was just a mess in terms of timing. It was some really bad timing, a little bit of a, a bit bad coincidence. But in, in, in terms of, you know, Bill Snyder, it definitely does make sense to kind of have some sort of clarity, um, especially since, since the new early signing period for recruiting, like you can't, you can't wait until the last week and then fire a staff and expect to do anything in the early recruiting period. There's a lot of schools that fill out, for the most part, their recruiting class in that early period. It's almost become like that's actually signing day, and then the, and then the the normal signing day is kind of a let's fill in all the holes that we have in our class. Um, so, you know, it's it's definitely not something that they can afford to get behind the ball on. Do you think that that the I mean the internal power struggle over at K State is going to be resolved in enough time to make that decision and and set them up for a good recruiting class? One would hope, but, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a, a similar dynamic in the leadership change, you know, that KU went through. I mean, General Myers, the university president, hasn't necessarily been at his job all too long, and the new AD, and that's his position, is to make these sort of changes. You know, he hasn't been there two years, so it is a little bit of a, you know, he's only been through one full season with, with Bill Snyder, so, I, you know, it's hard to speak towards what the relationship between Gene Taylor and uh, Bill Snyder is, um, but uh, again, uh, like I would just hope that I keep telling people, like, like if you had a good friend, you would hope that they would tell you, be able to consult you, and tell you when when they think it's you know you would think there'd be people close to Bill that aren't the athletic director that you know he would had have had some sort of conversation with you know, questioning himself or questioning the move. And uh, you just hope that there's, he has talked to somebody about it. And that all being said, I mean, just would be a shame that if the the whole athletic department wouldn't have the opportunity to put together some sort of a farewell ceremonial thing at the last home game. And so I I really hope that sort of what you alluded to, the the powers that be, um, are figuring that sort of thing into the equation as well. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like, you know, I heard one particular person give the take that 
Bill Snyder should have announced prior to the season that this was going to be his last season. And then he could have done the whole Derek Jeter farewell, farewell tour, you know, everywhere that he went and people were, you know, lavishing him with a bunch of praise and all of this stuff for how successful the career he's had. Um, you know, I'm imagining though, or I'm seeing a lot of parallels between this here with Bill Snyder as like Jim Calhoun over at Connecticut, the, the, the Connecticut basketball coach, mm-hmm. he essentially got to the point where he just, he just didn't know when it was time to hang it up. And eventually, you know, ran into some really big issues with that program and they're still trying to recover from that. Um, it, it, I, I imagine it's going to be a similar sort of situation for, for Jim Beheim over at Syracuse. You know, he's, he's been declining slowly at this point and eventually they're going to get to a point where he just can't do it anymore. Um, and I don't know that he's going to be self-aware enough to know when it's time to hand it off for the good of the program, as opposed to him just trying to hold on as long as possible. It seems like even though Bill Snyder is really the only successful coach you guys have had, you know, in a really long time, you know, that I think the failed Ron Prince experiment, um, in a way entrenched Bill Snyder even more. And so it's harder for people to give him that push that he needs to come to what was probably the best decision for the Kansas state program, because there's kind of that, that fear of, well, you know, what happens when we have to finally move on from him? Do we actually, you know, do we have that same mistake with, with the, that we had with Ron Prince? So, um, I mean, I, I don't, go ahead. I don't, well, I don't know why people can't also acknowledge. I mean, the flip side of that is the, the rip the bandaid off scenario. I mean, it, it's oh, yeah. inevitable, you know, it has to happen at some point. And like, would hate to see it. I think anybody. Will, this season's going to be forgettable, and I don't think anybody's really going to hold that against Bill. Like, oh, he stayed too long. We had one five and seven season, or one four and or whatever. You know, it ends up being right. But if you have two in a row, then that definitely becomes a more popular sentiment. You know, so it's just like, look, it, you know what? Yeah, it came to an end. Like, you know, we all figured it out. <laughs> right. And, and even nationally, like the sense you get for it right now is everyone's like, you know, it's going downhill at Kansas State. It's just a shame that it has to end this way for Bill Snyder. No one really could have seen this coming. Like maybe if you were digging really deep in the program, you might have had an inkling that this was possible. But nobody expected this to happen this year. You knew it was going to happen eventually, but nobody thought it was going to be this year. But now if he finds a way to hang on to next year, then it's like, well, you know, if we get the same or even worse results, then, well, we saw all the signs of this last year and they couldn't make the move. Now it's just, it's unfortunately, it's it's just getting a little sad, the fact that he is, you know, continuing to hang on at that point. So I really hope it doesn't get to that point. You know, as much as I would enjoy to see another Big 12 team be the laughing stock of the conference, you know, I, I don't want a, a coach that's been as great as Bill Snyder um, to, to go out on that, having multiple whole bad, bad seasons because he just didn't know when it was time to hang it up. So, all right. So, so let's go ahead and jump to the actual game itself. Obviously neither team has really been that great this year. Um, you know, I, I think, I think honestly, Kansas probably has the edge on the defensive end, especially when you factor in their turnover propensity. Uh, I would probably give Kansas state the edge offensively, but I, I want to get your honest assessment of these two programs. What is it that key state has um, that, gives them an edge in this game? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Because it seems like, uh, by, all, by all estimation, it's about as equal as these two teams have been, you know, in a week leading up to the game. And like you said, the best stat out of both teams, out of every, is probably that plus 15 turnover margin for the Jayhawks. Um, I, I guess the offensive line in the running the game, like, because I know 
Kansas doesn't necessarily have the most glorious uh, rushing defensive stats uh, necessarily, but the offensive line, which was supposed to be one of those, and you know, out of all of the injuries that K State has dealt with this year, and it's not like a horrible injury year. It's probably a mid-level, like it's not a great injury-free year, but it's not a like super depleted. We've had some key injuries, but the offensive line's one that really pretty much all five starters from the beginning of the year, which basically started all of last year, uh, haven't been injured. But they've been so inconsistent. They've probably been the most disappointing unit out of everything. But when they can turn it on, they do look really good. So it's really almost going to be like which offensive line shows up. Because if they do that, Alex Barnes can get into the second level, and I think just his sheer size might give the uh, you know the back end of the Jayhawks defense a little bit of trouble. But you know, I again, I think the teams are probably about as evenly matched as it's been in a long time. Yeah, I do think um, the the Kansas defensive stats, especially for rushing, are a little bit misleading because what what's been the the pattern for the most part in the year is that they do really well against the run early and then they get beat deep on a lot of deep throws as the defense finally re- or as the the opposing offense finally realizes that their best opportunity is in the long passing game which nat- naturally requires the two the two safeties in Mike Lee and Bryce Tornaden who are really really good against the run they have to back up to try to help in that long passing game which opens things up for the running game um you know, so uh, you'll you'll if if you actually go back and look at the stats by half, it, a lot of these teams are doing a lot better rushing in the second half than the first half because at that point they've had to um, they've had to start accounting for that long passing game. Um, how how good is Kansas State in the passing game? I've talked with a few other people who don't seem to really have a lot of faith in the ability of the Kansas State quarterback and receivers to hook up for really long passing plays. Is that an an an, an accurate assessment or? You know, is there is there really nothing there that they can hope to exploit the Jayhawks with? I really just want to say yes and be done with my answer, but I know that's not good for podcasting. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, Skylar Thompson uh, was one who came, hit the scene as a redshirt freshman or maybe as a sophomore last year. That's bad. I should know that. Um, you know, he just threw some just beautiful balls downfield and especially at like that Oklahoma State game and he just seemed to be super clutch and no moment was too big for him last year um but this year and of course uh, Alex Belton being the other quarterback um Skylar Thompson just he's just overthrowing he's just not connecting and I think you know there's some shared blame there with the wide receivers there's um of course Isaiah Zuber the the recent thrown under the bus candidate um, got demoted from first team wide receiver last week as well against TCU for what, I don't know why, but they make it sound like he's not good at special teams. So they moved him to second on the wide receiver depth charts. I, I don't know since to make it out of that, but you know, he's probably our best wide receiver, but he's probably better suited to be like a number two wide receiver. And none of the wide receivers really run great, great routes or if they do, they're, you know, the um, the two-star try-hard types like uh, Dalton Schoen and Zach Reuter, they're just, you know, half a step slow compared to the competition, so no one's really getting open. So there's a little bit of that, but, I mean, even in a lot of opportunities, though, when you finally do have an open wide receiver, Skyler Thompson's been sailing the ball over the head, and it's just really weird because he, he looked so on point last year. So I, I don't really know what to make out of the out of either quarterback. Um it's it's likely Alex Delton probably starts on Saturday, 
uh, Skylar Thompson suffered some sort of an injury right out of the gate in the TCU game. And um, nobody knows for sure if it's something that's like a concussion because he, you know, they didn't take his helmet from him, so people don't think it's that. But there's just this widely accepted belief that don't be surprised if Alex Delton's the starter on Saturday. So with that being said, you know, he's, he at times, it's not that he can't throw, but he's certainly not the most polished uh, passer. He When he does pass, he's not good at going through his progression. So, yeah, the passing game is just really, I mean, this is an offense that's averaging 21 point something points a game, which is just, like, ridiculous. I looked it up over the past uh, six seasons, and, I mean, the average is definitely between 20, had been between 29 and 33 points a game. So this is, this is a huge, huge adjustment. Yeah. So let's, let's flip over to the other side. Um, when, when, uh, Kansas on offense, I think the big story for Kansas on offense this year has been obviously Puka Williams. Um, you know, he is, he's fourth right now in terms of total rushing yards for the, for the big 12, um, behind three other really good juniors. Um, you know, he, he seems to be a big threat to take the, the, the ball to the house on pretty much any play, especially if he gets a little bit of space. How does Kansas State handle Puka Williams? And then also, you know, it, it's not just Puka. Khalil Herbert is a, is a bruising back on his own, um, was actually a really explosive back last year and just hasn't had as many touches this year. Um, he actually came out really good and uh, – or came out really well against Iowa State and was running it quite a bit there. Kind of a different style than what Puka does. So how, how does Kansas State handle kind of that, that two-headed attack on the rushing game? Well, K-State's ninth in the league with giving up 177 yards of rushing offense a game. And um, I think what – I'm more worried about Puka Williams. Obviously, he's a dynamic runner, but um, it's been a bad tackling team this year. And so with the moves that uh, – Puka has that I'd be a little more worried about the um the linebackers been in such a shaky spot and then uh it's been a revolving door back there in the defensive secondary. Of course Duke Shelley out for the rest of the year underwent a surgery um either yesterday or, or today. I can cannot remember, but um there's a lot of young players in the secondary, so as long as you know, if Puka can get to that second level, uh, it's just been a bad tackling team and so um while I haven't necessarily watched a lot of Herbert's uh air. did I say that right? Did I get that? Uh Herbert? His yeah, his yeah. running style. Um ultimately the same things apply, but uh you know, that's been another disappointing thing. Traditionally K State's been fairly fairly good in the uh the run defense, but that of course is kind of a byproduct of getting tore up through the air though too. <laughs> right, right. All right. So I mean the, the, the Kansas passing game isn't really anything special to write home about. Um, Bender seems to be doing a little bit better recently. Uh, they seem to be connecting on some of those short slants a little bit better than they were before. But to be honest, I, I don't know that that's going to be a street extremely successful. Um, it still wasn't really that successful in the win against TCU. Uh, most of the damage was done on the ground there. So I really do think we, in terms of like the big matchups that are going to decide the game, we've kind of already talked about those. But I do want to... I do want to ask you what is, what what do you think is going to be the most important matchup in the game? Oh man, uh, just any matchup, huh? I had not even thought about it that that deep, but uh, probably the defensive second, K State's defensive secondary, just because it is a it's 
it's been a different uh, compilation probably each of the last three games. Um, Jonathan Durham uh, had had to play a little bit of nickel last week when he that's not really his strong suit. He's really not super well suited uh, to be covering some of these wide receivers in the Big 12 um, with with uh, Duke Shelley, who was was probably the he was really starting to come into to something else uh, there. That's like the Baylor game, the Oklahoma State game. Um, had some pretty fantastic interceptions. Um, Kendall Adams has been in and out of the lineup as well. Denzel Goolsby, who went out early in the season and came back, really hasn't looked much like who he was last year. Um, so I, I would think that, yeah, even though the, the Kansas passing games have been a little inconsistent, uh, K-State's defensive secondary play has been fairly inconsistent uh, here in the last three four games as well. Yeah, it sounds like that definitely could be an X factor. If they've both been really inconsistent, they could both be either really good or really bad. That might end up being like the actual thing that decides the game then. So, all right. So, so final question for you. Um, you know, we, we like to do this with all the guests we have come on the podcast to preview games. What do you like, how do you think the game's actually going to go? Whether you want to give me an actual score prediction or if you just want to talk about like trends that you expect to see in the game, um, give us some, some sort of prediction for how this game is going to go. Well, it, it might your listeners probably will laugh when I say this, but you know, I mean, KU is in a relative sense trending upward enough in the recent weeks that it seems like, in case it's turning down enough, again, kind of where we started the show, I feel like they're about as even as they've been in a long time. I guess if if you have to start splitting hairs, you know, you start putting a plus sign over on K State's side for home crowd, you put a plus sign on K-State's column for coaching advantage. So if it, if it comes down to that, I guess K-State's got enough plus signs to, to tip the scales in their favor. But, um, I mean, the emotional energy part, it, that kind of goes back to the comment I made about the offensive line. I mean, they just look like, I mean, games, they're just being flat. And I could even go almost as far back to last year. I went to that K-State-Vanderbilt game, and it was more that that same, like, you're supposed to be, like, an elite unit, and you're not, like, body language-wise, you're just acting like, I'm here. So, with that being said, the emotional side of thing, you know, which is so much a big part of college football, with the KU locker room has the, uh, you know, whoever was recruited by David Beatty and whoever, he was a player's coach, and whoever was a fan of David Beatty from inside the locker room, I feel like Jayhawks have a little bit of the emotional advantage. So unless Bill Snyder tells the locker room before they head out onto the field right before kickoff that he's going to retire, I think the Jayhawks are probably going to come out and start, start the game a little stronger. So that's where it's really hard for me to... I mean, I could I could foresee Dave State losing this game just as easily as I could see him winning. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, to kind of talk about what you had talked about, you're right. Um, I, I do think that Bill Snyder is a better coach than David Beatty. Um, you know, so they, they have the advantage there. Kansas State actually does have a home field advantage. I mean, if you saw Kansas, Kansas was making news for the fact that there's probably more Iowa State fans at the game last week at in, in Lawrence than there were Kansas fans. Um, so, you know, but um, that was a little bit embarrassing. But like you were saying, basically every single player on this roster was, uh, there's only... There's only, let's see, two redshirt seniors uh, in Issy Halani and John Wordle. 
um, John Worrell being the long snapper and then E.C. Halani being a defensive tackle. Like those are the, those are the only two players that were redshirt uh, that are redshirt seniors. So have are technically long enough in college. And actually looking at this now, um, Halani was actually a, a, a junior college player. So he was also recruited here by Beatty. So every single player on this roster, except for the long snapper is a David Beatty recruit. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the, the fact that he is no longer going to be the coach, they're all going to want to win one for the guy that brought them to campus. Um, this is their best chance to do that for the rest of the year. So yeah, I'm definitely uh, thinking that they might, might have somewhat of an emotional edge, but the other thing too, being, you know, it's not going to be his last game. He's got two, two more games after that. Um, it's not like this is a, a senior game. You know, they have that against Texas at the end of the year. So I, I do think that, Anybody who's really thinking that they're going to have a huge emotional edge is it's kind of blowing that out of proportion a little bit. Um, but overall, when it comes down to it, I think I think Kansas has a has a talent edge on the defense and probably a scheme edge on the defense as well. Um, but you know, Kansas State probably has a, a talent edge on the offense at every position other than the running back position. Um, so you know whether that's enough to overcome what Kansas is able to do on defense and whether Kansas can get enough momentum on defense. I'm not really sure. I'm not expecting either of these teams uh, to really get, get it going on offense. I've actually already um, booked a prediction with another podcast saying that I believe, I believe the prediction I gave, it was going to be like 13 to 10 Kansas state. I'm expecting a low scoring game. Um, and ultimately I think Kansas state is going to pull it out just because they're going to be at home and, you know, no one's really going to get the offenses going. So, um, usually you go with the home team in that sort of defensive matchup. So, um, but yeah, should be a fun game. Um, you know, two, two fan bases that aren't really feeling it. So it's going to be, uh, I think a low key kind of just let's go watch some football and hope that people don't embarrass themselves too bad. Yeah. I hope well, I just hope it's better than 14, 13. Um, <laughs> That was yeah. rough last week. <laughs> well, to be honest, I could see it being something similar to that. You know, a lot of a lot of bad football or or good defense being played, depending on how you want to look at it. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's what that's what I fear. Uh, I'm, I will be there, but um, but Andy, thanks for thanks for the invite. Um, yeah, no problem. It's a great so, way to get back in the podcast game. Exactly. So so real quick for those for those that are listening, how how can they find you online? So the uh, the best way uh, would be it would be it would show up on the Go Paracat homepage, um, but it will also be a it will it will be uploaded to the uh, shoot what's the uh, I know by color what's the uh, the podcast website the orange the SoundCloud orange, uh, yeah SoundCloud it's they it's a SoundCloud it will be uh, up on SoundCloud I do believe they also wind up posting to iTunes as well. Um, after, but SoundCloud is the sort of the the parent podcast, if you will, uh, through the homepage. And that's the Emod the Emodio podcast you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, the Emodio podcast will be featured on the uh, GoParacat.com homepage. Uh, awesome, sounds sounds good. What about Twitter? Where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, my handle is GTCat underscore Emodio, so E M A W D I O. And, uh, yeah, that would be the best way to find me on Twitter. Sounds good. All Which, right. by the way, tell, Go ahead. tell Michael Plank I love following him on Twitter. Cause, um, now I probably will block him during basketball season, but, <laughs> um, but, but I, I do appreciate cause the whole David Beatty situation did get to just absurd levels of like, why, why is he still here? And anyone who gave Michael a grief, like, no, that was like, that's, 
kind of where all the KU fans should have been was basically where he was at. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we've talked about it multiple times on the podcast. We spent a good three months of last season just talking about over and over again, why is David Beatty still here? Why are we having to deal with this? So, yeah. Yeah, I definitely uh, suffered through that with him. And, uh, it, you know, he'll be glad to hear that there's somebody outside of the KU fan base that actually appreciates <laughs> the, the, the the tweeting he'd been doing on that. So, all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure we get all that information in the show notes so that people can find you. Uh, Grant, it, it was it was great talking to you tonight. Andy, it was, uh, it was a pleasure, and thanks again. Yep. All right. Have a good one. You too. And that'll do it for today's episode. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Coming up this weekend, we have – Actually, quite a bit going on for the uh, for the KU Athletic Department. Uh, today being Friday, we have the Jayhawks, as I mentioned in the interview with uh, Fetch. Uh, we have the Kansas soccer team hosting St. Louis in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Uh, that's happening 7 o'clock. Uh, you can watch that online on ESPN3. Uh, this is ESPN3, the, the, the free one, not... So free, assuming you have ESPN, not the ESPN Plus you have to actually subscribe for individually. So uh, football, obviously, is is against K-State. That will be at 11 a.m. Uh, that is going to be on the local Fox Sports Network. You can find it all over the place. Kansas Volleyball is down in Austin, taking on Texas at 1 p.m. Uh, Texas is going to try to get some revenge for the win that we had up here earlier this season. We'll see if they can manage that. Then we also have on Monday men's basketball uh, is playing is, is hosting Vermont, so that'll be the the home opener down at Allen Fieldhouse, 8 p.m. on ESPN2. Women's basketball on Tuesday is hosting Oral Roberts uh, again in Allen Fieldhouse. That'll be 7 p.m. on ESPN Plus. And then to wrap it all up, I think we'll have another podcast episode before then, but just in case, Wednesday, November November 14th, volleyball is, uh, hosts Kansas State. At home, that'll be 6:30 on ESPN Plus. So, uh, make sure you guys tune in for all that Jayhawk action this week. Again, I want to thank you guys for listening. You can find us online on Twitter at Rock Chalk Pod. You can email us rockchalkpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Rate, subscribe, uh, five star rating would be awesome. Uh, again, thank you guys for listening. We will have. Some uh, exciting guests, I think, coming up next week. I'm still working to try to get Joe Dorsey Hall back on the podcast so we can do our women's basketball preview, um, kind of do a check-in about the volleyball team as well. But uh, big things to look forward to for next week. So uh, once again, thank you guys for listening, and we will catch you next time on the Rock Talk Podcast. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.